and by his wounds we are healed. We are restored to the relationship that was broken in the fall. And what a glorious truth that is. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, as we come to verse 31 today, we're going to go through the end of this chapter, verse 42. And next week, we're going to come back and look at sort of an overview of the entire chapter because there's several, several things here that we have touched on but have not spent enough time on, and we'll do that before we get to the, to the resurrection. And I want, to, I want to be sure we understand some great truths that come before we get to that great truth of the empty tomb. Last week, we looked at the passage just prior to this, verses 1 through 30, a very lengthy passage we concentrated primarily on the statement, it is finished. Our Lord's declaration, his cry from the cross, not of defeat, not of, uh, uh, not of somehow giving in to fate and just saying, okay, well, this is, this is the fate that I must endure, but a statement that literally says, it is finished. The, the, the purpose which I came into the world, the reason I came and the ministry that I came for is now completed on the cross. And then he gave up his spirit and he died there. And so the, the title last, sermon, last week's sermon was, And Then He Died. And that sounds like such just a normal way of looking at it, but we realize that he died by his own choice. As, as Pilate said, don't you know I've got the right to have you crucified or I've got the authority to set you free? And Jesus said, no, you have no authority over me except that which has been granted you by my Father in heaven. And so we need to realize that and recognize all of that comes into play as they begin to take Jesus down from the cross and begin to prepare him for burial. Hear the word of the Lord from John 19, beginning verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so that the bodies would not be, remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for their Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead by his own giving up of the Spirit, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who was sent has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For those things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from back in chapter 3, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices. 
as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, John covers some points in this passage that are not covered by the other gospel writers, by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He talks about things from a different perspective, from his own perspective, to show us several things about the death and the burial of our Lord in these passages. And he wants us to see them with clarity and understanding because they're important for us to grasp. Now, the other disciples talk about other things. They talk about a stone being rolled in front of the tomb. John doesn't deal with that. He just said Jesus was laid in the tomb, and and assuming, I suppose, that we know that this tomb would have been closed if he'd have been laid there. But in, in this whole chapter, there are really nine episodes that kind of draw attention to the importance of the death that's taking place. The, the first thing you have in, as an episode is the title that is written on the cross, written in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, where Pilate wrote, King of the Jews, so that all might see it. The, the Jewish leaders wanted to say, no, say he, right on there that he said he was King of the Jews, but Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And there was a great testimony there, even in his death, as it hung over him in all three languages so people would understand king of the Jews. His royalty, his kingship, his lordship is expressed right there. Then we saw last week about the seamless garment that was taken by the soldiers. There was, they had this, this tunic wrapped around him, this purple tunic uh, looking like royalty. Obviously one of the, probably came from one of the ones in the praetorium there when he was being judged and placed on him. And when they got to the grave, rather than tearing it apart, it was seamless. They cast lots for it. And that seamless garment expressing his his, his royalty, even as the sign did on the cross. We had Jesus' mother the beloved, and the beloved disciple at the, at the foot of the cross. We had John there and Mary there, and, and, and as, as was the custom in many cases in crucifixions, for there to be sort of a, a last will and testament expression from the cross. Many times a, a dying person on the cross would say, this is who I bequeath all of my earthly goods. All Jesus had was to say, mother, into your hands, I commit you into your son, and son, your mother. He, he gave Mary's care over to John, and John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, graciously took it. You have Jesus' words on the cross that talks about his giving up the spirit, his, his, his expression there that carries with it just tons of meaning. When it says he said it is finished and he gave up the spirit, uh, he's been talking about all through chapters 14 through 16 how when that, moment take, when that moment happens on the cross, there will be a giving of the spirit, there will be a coming of the spirit. And there's almost that expression that Jesus is saying there, I'm giving up my spirit in order that the spirit might come and might indwell you. The breaking of the legs that we read about just a moment ago that we see there where the, both of the terrorists on each side of Jesus have their legs broken. The legs were broken so they could expedite death. As long as they're hanging on the cross, many times, sometimes people would hang there for, for days waiting to die if they were strong enough because it, it was really death by asphyxiation, by, by suffocation, and, and they would push themselves up by their legs and by their arms. Their arms would give out a lot quicker than the legs would, but they'd pull themselves up to be able to open their chest cavity and be able to take in air and expel air, and sometimes they would hang there for long periods of time, and the Jewish leader said, let's break their legs so we can get this over with. 
They came and they broke the legs of both of the, uh, of both of the terrorists on each side of him so that they might just hang there in agony and die quicker. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And we saw that by that they didn't break his legs. And John will show us in a minute. We'll look at it so that we might see that Scripture is fulfilled. There's the blood and water from Jesus' side, which we'll talk about in a moment, that many people sometimes take and want to make all sorts of symbols out of. We'll talk about some of the, the symbols that are somewhat shortcoming, but, but it's an important thing that it's showing that he died. The burial spices that, that Nicodemus brought. Here you've got two, two disciples that were secret disciples. Joseph, who, who is really kind of interesting that, that Joseph Arimathea shows up at the tomb. He shows up there at the grave site of, of, of uh, Jesus at the, at the cross and wants his body, but you've not heard anything about Joseph before this, and you never hear anything about him again. That's, he's kind of like Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He just appears on the scene, he does what he's assigned to do, and he's gone. There, there's no real uh, inf- uh, information about him. But we do know that he was a disciple. John says he was a secret disciple of the Lord. And then as Joseph is taking the body away, along comes Nicodemus back from chapter 3, who we know is a part of the Sanhedrin, who evidently was also a secret disciple of Jesus, even among the leadership of the Jews. And he comes bearing a hundred pounds of spices with which to prepare the body and lay him in the grave. Next week we'll talk about the danger of secret discipleship. Then you've got ninth and finally this newly built tomb. No doubt an artificial cave, a a, a hewned out cave that that was being prepared. It doesn't really say in John's gospel that it belonged to Joseph, but the implications there in the other gospels that it was Joseph's tomb prepared for his family. But, But it's prepared, and so they put the body in there. And then we find out from the other disciples, Mark and Luke and, and, and Matthew, that, that they, they've rolled the stone in front of the grave and they seal it by a Roman seal and place a Roman guard there. And everything is done to be sure that this one who said, I'm going to raise again in three days, will not do that. I mean, the, 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 the drama, the subtle drama of chapter 19 is just overbearing if you think about it and dwell on it, and concentrate on it. But what I want you to see here is this unfolding of events in verses 31 through 42 that really show us some very significant and important things that we'll bring out again a little later in this series as we come to the resurrection. The first thing I want you to see is the entire unfolding of events, every single one of them, all the way through the soldiers breaking the legs as well as piercing the side of Jesus, is there to testify beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus was dead. You know, there are a lot of theories that floated around and, and still float around today. Well, he just swooned, you know, he just kind of passed out. He kind of lost a lot of blood and got very weak, and, and he looked to be dead. He appeared to be dead. And when they took him down to the cross, he really wasn't dead. And they put him in that tomb, and the coolness and the dampness of that tomb, that cave, just sort of rejuvenated him, kind of gave him a a new lease on life. And when he came out of the tomb, he really never had fully died. There was just this swooning away. Well, John is wanting us to understand that when 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 he says, I give up my spirit, when he says it is finished and gives up his spirit, and when the soldier comes up and sees there's no reason to 
to break his legs. Listen, these soldiers were trained to know what death looked like. They would have made a great coroner in our own day. They, they knew what death looked like. They knew what death was. But just to be sure, one of the soldiers takes his spear and pierces the side of Jesus, and it says that water and blood come flowing out, separate. Now, I'm no doctor, and I read a lot of medical explanations of what that means, and I'm still no doctor. You know, the water and blood being separated, water from around the sack of the heart that that came out first, or maybe water that had had, had gathered around because of the asphyxiation between the lungs and the the ribs. I, I don't know what that was, medically speaking, but spiritually speaking, it was symbolic that Jesus Christ was dead. It was not just blood coming out, it was blood and water that that showed that he really had died on that cross. There was no swooning. There was no passing out. There was no just appearance as death. There was real death on the cross. And, and so John wants to see, first of all, that he was dead. Secondly, he wants us to see that this event on the cross and the death of Jesus is the result or the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He He makes that very clear. He says, for these, in verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture that said, not a bone of his shall be broken. And another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Psalm 34 that that Brother Todd read just a little bit ago, it said he protects his bones and not one of them is broken. And Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look on me, the one whom they have pierced. The Old Testament prophets spoke of what was going to happen in the death of Jesus. And all those things began to come together and and show themselves in that death. The piercing of the side, the not breaking of the legs, fulfilling exactly what God had said about that. But I want you to see something even more about the not breaking of the legs. Thirdly, that that is showing and pointing to Jesus as being the ultimate Passover lamb who would be slain for the sins of his people. You see, in in the Passover lamb, when it was was to be a a lamb without blemish and without spot, it was to be a lamb that was perfect, and the bones of the lamb were not to be broken. The lamb was to be sacrificed in completeness, if you will. And so when John speaks here about his bones not being broken and the Scripture being fulfilled, it's not just to say that David had it right in Psalm 34 and Zechariah had it right in chapter 12. It's to say that, listen, I want you to understand, this points to the fulfillment, the totality, the completeness of all of that sacrifice that has taken place prior to this. All of those symbols throughout the the Jewish history that went went to the sacrificial altar, this one Jesus is fulfilling every bit of that. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. He is the one who really does bear our sin. He is the one who really does take away our sin. He is the one who really can justify us, make us just declare just in the in the sight of God he is the one who really does do a work in our life that changes us for for thousands of years hundreds of years the Jews had on the day of atonement offered that that lamb and and they had done that with the understanding that this was for the sins of the people and yet it was only good for to that point Sins came again. 
And a year later, they had to offer the sacrifice again. John makes clear and the scripture makes clear that now there is no more sacrifice for sin. There is no more payment for sin. There is no more having to having to somehow scrape up your own good righteousness to be able to to offer some kind of sacrifice that would deal with it for the moment. It is now once and for all completed in this one, Jesus Christ. He is the, his bones not being broken pointed to the perfection of the Passover lamb. Which leads us really to the third thing, um, excuse me, the fourth thing that John wants us to see. And that these verses mentioning the blood and the water really are fulfilling that, that prophecy of Zechariah that is so important. Now, I want you to understand, a lot of people have tried to, to make a lot more symbolism out of that than probably is, is good. Uh, some of the early church fathers, Tertullian and Aquinas, they, they both talked about, as the side was pierced, that, that the water represented baptism and the blood represented the, uh, the martyrdom. Baptism by water and baptism by martyrdom. Both, the early father said, this is what is going to come. We will, have so, we will have all who are in Christ will be baptized by water. And many will be baptized by blood. They'll be baptized by martyrdom. I'm not sure that's what John has in mind here. Others have come and said, well, this is a symbol of the water being of baptism and the blood being of the Lord's Supper. And reminding us that we're to observe the supper together. That in the supper there is the blood of the new covenant represented by the wine. And, and so Jesus on the cross, the piercing, represents those two things. But blood is never used as a symbol by itself. It's always bread and blood. Bread and wine that represents that supper. One of the more creative ones, I think, throughout history was where they, they took it all the way back to the book of Genesis. And said, well, you know, in, in Genesis, when God looked at man and said it was not good for man to be alone, and so he put, man, put Adam to sleep, and he took a rib out of his side, and he created woman. He created his bride for him right there in the garden. And so they said, in the same way, out of this piercing of the flowing of blood, out of the side of Jesus, the same place that Eve came from, the rib area, then the, the, the church is born out of that. Well, it is true that out of the... Through the death of Christ, the church is born. But again, I'm not sure that John had that in mind. Others have said, well, what that means when he's pierced and the blood and the water flow out, it's that Jesus is dying of a broken heart. Not true. He was not dying of a broken heart. He was not dying a death of defeat. He was dying a death of absolute victory. He was dying a death that says, I have accomplished what I came to accomplish. I have come so that all those, even those who are screaming out to crucify me, if they trust me, can come to a relationship with God, can have an eternal relationship with the eternal Father. You know, we, we read that in, in Zechariah 10, where it says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn that has died 
But you really have to go down a few more verses into chapter 13, verse 1, to find out the full meaning of what John is talking about here. Because there, Zechariah says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That death, that piercing, that blood flowing is symbolic. But it's symbolic of the great gift that has now been opened up for all who believe. The gift of life, the gift of sin being forgiven, the the gift of purity. You see, it's more than just sins being forgiven. That'd be a great thing in and of itself, no doubt. But you see, on that cross, as we've talked about numerous times before, there was more than just sin being forgiven for those who believe. There was also righteousness being given. There was also his righteousness to be imputed to those who would believe. It was, it, was the, it was the goodness and the grace of God to show his righteousness and to give it to those who are his disciples, who are his children, those who come to him by faith. So I, I think about the great hymn that William Cowper wrote years ago. Cowper, a friend of, of someone more notable, John Newton, a contemporary who both were hymn writers and, and, and poets, if you will. But, but Cowper, known as an English poet, and, and wrote the great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. And, and, and he writes that hymn with such passion, and he's thinking about the cross when he writes it. And understand, Cowper was a believer, a strong Christian, proclaimer of the word, who suffered enormous depression. Who, who Newton tried to help on numerous occasions. He, he would become suicidal. He would become so depressed on so many occasions. But yet he could write a hymn like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. God with us, Jesus Christ. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. Dear dear dying lamb, Your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. It goes from recognizing the fountain at Calvary, the fountain at the cross, where Christ gave himself as a ransom, gave himself as a sacrifice, gave himself in our place, all the way to eternity future. In glory, in heaven, when all of those who are ransomed, all of those who are bought, all of those who are redeemed, the very church of God, all the people of God, until all the church of God be saved to sin no more. It won't happen tomorrow, unless tomorrow you go to be with him. It won't happen in a week. It won't happen in this lifetime sinning no more as much as 
we might wish it and want it, we're still ravaged by the struggle of the flesh and sin that dwells in us, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 7. But Cowper captured it. He captured the glory of this death in a, in a poem, in a hymn, that is exactly what the Apostle John is desiring for us to see here. That in this death, there is a, there's a glorious gift being given that can only come from the grace of Almighty God. So you see that death experience. And then they took him down. They took him down. They walked him, they, they carried him to a grave. Nicodemus came and, and had all the myrrh and the aloes and, and, and all of the, the spices, a hundred pounds worth, that were the custom of Jewish burial in that day. They laid him in the tomb, obviously, or probably the way the tombs were that day, there would be a shelf in there inside the, the hewn out grave. And on that shelf, they would lay the body, wrap it in grave clothes, if you will, and then between each wrapping, they would place these, this myrrh and aloes, and they would, they would do that to, as a kind of embalming, but it would form a hardened encasement around the, the grave clothes. It would prepare that body for death. What you see in that is that when Joseph and Nicodemus and the others laid him in the grave, they were preparing him to stay there, folks. They weren't really anticipating what he had told them all along was going to happen. So, so when it happens, there's no, okay, we, we, we were really excited because we knew this was going to come about. They, they were preparing him for death. They were putting him in the grave. They were seeing the end. They thought of, of everything they had invested their lives in. Not knowing that there was yet to come a glorious appearance again of him. They lay him in the tomb. And the indication is that they went away grieving and sad. They went away thinking, well, it, it's, it's, it's done. You know that Peter must have, in all of his grief and all of his guilt, of his denying the Lord three times, must be somewhere weeping bitterly. And the disciples gather and they talk about what's happening. The other gospels indicate some of them went back to their fishing boats, some went back to their regular lives. They shook their heads not knowing what in the world was taking place. But John is carefully and meticulously building his case here. And he comes to this and he, he shows us three themes that are going to spring out from 19 and beyond in this book. And first of all, he wants you to see, even by, by the inscription and everything else, that Jesus' kingship is an important part of understanding his life. Pilate thought he was mocking. Pilate thought he was just trying to Good little jab in at these Jews who, 
who really, he didn't think this man deserved to die. He had said, I find no guilt in him. I don't find any reason for him to die. And so just as a jab and as a final word, he puts king of the Jews across his, at the head of his cross. John wants us to see that that theme of kingship is continuing, even in his death. And that there's glorification yet to come. Yes, there is sacrifice here. Yes, there is substitution here. There is the idea of Jesus as that Passover lamb dying on a cross. But we have to understand that imagery is just setting us up for what is yet to come. John links the spirit and the cross. He, he links the, his death and it's not a culmination of life as, as we think of death. It's not an ending, and, and, and it's not just simply that his work is finished in the sense that he'll not do any other work. But the accomplishment of salvation is done. And it opens up all sorts of possibilities and all sorts of realities for spiritual life and spiritual renewal in the lives of those whom he saves. You know, it's real easy for us to read the story of the crucifixion as Christians. As those who have trusted in that death and have trusted in that person of Jesus Christ and say, well, it's a great story. It belongs back there. And fail to realize it's a great story that, re that, that belongs in the now. His death is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago and, and kind of settled something. His death is something that opens up all sorts of possibilities for life for you and me today. His death brings life to those who believe. His death brings renewal. His death brings a, a, an ability to walk with Christ, to know God through Jesus Christ and, and know Him in this life. Even as we are being prepared for the next life. so easy for us as Christians just to say, well, the death of Christ, that was an important, particular time in history. Put a pin in it, nail it down, that's fact. But it's by his death that we are received in the presence of Christ. It's by his death that we are given life to be renewed and to grow in and to mature. You know, we, we, we look at baptism, baptized Josh this morning. And, and, and that is an expression of beginning, but, but as we've talked to Josh about, that's certainly not the end. That's not, the, that's not, okay, I've done that, I'm here, I've trusted Christ, I've now been baptized, made that profession, and now I just sit around and wait till I die. No. Because of that death on the cross, and that symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, expressing that we are now in Christ, is to be a life of growth, a life of maturity, a life of developing, a life of knowing Him better tomorrow than you knew Him today. 
and better today than you knew him yesterday. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a maturing. When, when Paul said to the Philippians that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be conformed even to his death, Paul is speaking that 20 years after salvation, and he's saying, here's still the goal of my life. I just want to know Jesus better. It's all contingent on that cross because he said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. I want to be made like him in his death. I want to ultimately be made like him in my glorification with him in heaven, with him in glory. But right now, I want to be being molded and shaped and changed and renewed because of that death in my life every day more like him. We'll see that resurrection And we'll see the end of John. We'll see all the ministry of Jesus as he prepares them for then the coming of his Holy Spirit that we'll look at at the end of John as we move into Acts just a little bit. But I want you to understand, John is wanting us to focus here on the most important, the most significant event In all of history. The very Son of God. Now, we call that theologically his death on the cross as being penal substitutionary atonement. If you don't know that terminology, you need to know it. Penal because he paid our penalty. Penalty because uh, penal because he paid a price. That had to be exacted. Now, there are many in our day who, you know, I read guys like Bishop Shelby Spong, who are the Episcopal Bishop, and, and others who today say, well, I'm not going to worship a God who requires the death of his own son. I'll loathe that God. I will not worship him. Go figure. One other, other contemporary theologians who have said, well, that's just cosmic child abuse is all that is. It's hated by the natural mind. It's like the secularist Ted Turner who just simply says, I don't want anybody dying for me, okay? Then die for yourself. That's the only other option. And I don't mean physical death, I mean eternal death. You know, it's just the fact that John wants us to see that there was a substitutionary, penal expression on that cross. The penalty was paid, sins are forgiven, and life is given to those who believe. It's an event of history. It's a historical fact. But it is so, so much more. It is the point in which history converges completely. The past and that day and the future from that day, which is our present, all converge on that event. How you deal with what took place on that cross has eternal significance. How you deal with the one who hung there and was taken down and placed in a tomb, how you deal with that person carries eternal significance. And significance for now and significance forevermore. 
we can try to come up with all sorts of clever explanations, all sorts of clever symbols. We don't need those. We just need to understand that this is showing, this is showing what God was willing to do and what God did to redeem a people for himself. And the question is, the question remains, what have, you, what have you done in your life about the man that was, is on that was on that cross? How do you see that death? Do you see it as just a man dying? Just as the two terrorists did on each side? Maybe tragically because he was a good man, the only good man that ever lived. Or do you see it as a death in which you die there with him? Him dying in your place and you being, as Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. And yet, I live. But I, I, I don't live in the flesh. I live by the Spirit of God. I live by His power because I am crucified with him. And all, that I, all the world is crucified to me, and I to all the world. Because he's what really matters. He's really not just the central figure of history. He's the central figure of my life. What have you done with this one that's on the cross? What have you believed about him and have you believed in him? That's the question of ultimate importance. Let's pray together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Symbolism, Father, is so great in that that at the cross we see the fountain that cleanses and gives life Cowper put it in such a poetic and beautiful way. But Lord, it's just the biblical truth that John is showing us in the 19th chapter. Father, help us to see that fountain. And help us rejoice in that fountain. Help us rejoice in the gift that you have given Father, change us. Lord, I pray for men and women who are here this morning that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will move in their life, even today, and bring them to faith in Christ. Father, that not only will their sins be forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ will clothe them. Father, do your work in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.